Welcome back to the podcast. It's your host, John Scardita. I am so excited for this episode. I love podcasting every week. It's very rare, though, that I get to read a book, Walk Through Fire specifically, before the episode airs. So this is a really special experience for us. If you're in emergency management, specifically hazmat, we did a hazmat episode just a few weeks ago. And uh, if you're in this space, you definitely need to understand what happened in Waverly, Texas, or Tennessee, uh 1978 most people are aware of that disaster because what happened with fema a year later but we're going to be talking all about that today with dr ali she is really incredible in fact she has a lot of personal ties to this book which we'll talk about in a little bit but it's a huge honor and thank you again for letting me read your book walk through fire welcome to the show doctor oh my goodness thank you so much john for having me on the show i'm delighted to be here and i'm just so thrilled that you've read the book and enjoyed it so thank you for that well i figure if you send me the book it's only the polite thing to do to, to read it <laughs> and um honestly funny enough um when i read the book especially with your forward and me mentioning how your parents were directly involved and the people that you knew and involved um i read this book kind of like how i read unbroken it's almost like a love letter to the people you knew in the book. Yes. And yeah. Yes. So I, I kind of uh, appreciated the the human touch to like, I don't know, like every after action report I read where it's just like just data. Now I'm like, okay, like these are the people who are involved. And as a humanitarian, um, I like reading about the story. So I appreciate that you you added that backdrop in there for sure. Oh, thank you so much. You really captured the essence of it right there. And, and that's why I wanted to write the book because, you know, the statistics are out there, but you hear so little about the people behind it, the people who actually went through the disaster and the first responders who were there and, and what they went through and what that was like for them mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how they've had to deal with it the rest of their lives, those who survived. Absolutely. You have an entire section of the book about that. In fact, um, just out of like spiking curiosity, I ended up researching some of the individuals um, who are mentioned in the book. And uh, one of the gentlemen um, where his uh, fire chief had passed away, he talked about carrying that with him and carrying the decision of sending other responders into that incident and um, having their lives uh, uh, being cut short from that, at least uh, two, I believe. I um, mean, so it just shows that like, uh 1978 to 2023 definitely changed how we communicate in emergency services however it was painful to read the same problems that existed then some kind in, in a way kind of exists now that last of coordination and uh communication that can happen at the tactical level in response and so from that perspective i was like oh man like good to call that out there um Let's talk about besides your personal connection. Like I, I live in I live in Missouri. Like every time there's a tornado, I don't feel the need to write a book. So <laughs> what what was your like background of like okay like you're an MD like you obviously have your own career. What was the motivation to write Walk Through Fire? Yeah, I'll definitely tell you that. But I just want to be sure your listeners know what we are talking about here with the Waverly Train disaster because it has been 45 years. So just to recap. On the night of Wednesday, February 22nd, 1978, it's almost 45 years ago now, a 96-car L&N freight train derailed in the center of Waverly, Tennessee, which is my hometown, and that's going to get to the why of, of this. Mm. Among the 23 wrecked cars were two white 30,000-gallon tankers full of liquid propane. Mm -hmm. 
And then two days later, after that derailment at 2.55 p.m. on the afternoon of Friday, February 24th, one of the propane tankers exploded during the cleanup efforts. And that explosion took 16 lives and all of Waverly's Newtown section with it. More than 200 people were injured. So growing up in Waverly, everybody knows about the Waverly train disaster. And, you know, it's just one of those things you grow up hearing and learning about. And in fact, still to this day, when somebody when somebody in this region asks where I'm from and I tell them Waverly, there will still be people who say, oh, you know, there was a major train disaster there. I remember, you know, such and such. Uh, but personally, like, I, yeah, grew I wrote up a book about it. Yeah, <laughs> that is... I, I'm a little bit aware. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly what I think. <laughs> Um, and uh, personally, I did. I grew up hearing some of the inside stories that most people didn't know about it when it came to the work of the first responders in the immediate aftermath of that disaster. Because my own parents, as you mentioned, um, doctors Subi and Maysoon Ali were the physicians on call for the emergency department at the small community hospital in Waverly uh, called Nautilus Memorial Hospital at the time, which was just three minutes from the train derailment site. Um, but it was in the summer of 2011, and actually this story was so important to why I wrote the book that I actually put it in the first part of the acknowledgments. So you may have seen this, but sometime in the summer of 2011, I think I was um, probably, I had my own cardiology practice by that time. So, you know, I had moved out of Waverly into the Nashville area and I was visiting and a tall stately man with the nickname of Toad stopped me in the hallway of my parents' clinic in Waverly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he just initially stopped to say hello, see how I was doing because I was down from Nashville to visit for the day. And then my father, uh, Dr. Subiali, came out of an exam room and saw us standing in the hallway and called out to Mr. Smith, Toad, show her your hands. And from that moment and the story that ensued, and it's all in the book, because Toad Smith is a marvelous storyteller, I just became utterly fascinated and you really then obsessed by the tragedy that occurred in my hometown in that February of 1978 and the heroic roles that were played by people whom I had known or thought I had known all my life. And mm. so really since 2011, I've been working on this book, gathering their stories, trying to nail down details and facts because this has never, the story of this disaster, believe it or not, has never been written from start to finish. There have been statistics. There were newspaper newspaper articles at the time. Every now and then you'll see an article on an anniversary, but never the whole story. And I really just couldn't believe that uh, because of yeah. what an amazing story it is and how important it was for our nation. So, so that was what led to the book. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at l3harris.com right now. 
Instinct Ready Kits are awesome, compact, fully loaded, and easy to place around your office, school, campus, warehouse, wherever. I keep a quick pack in my vehicle and one at home. Imagine Instinct Ready fully loaded Stop the Bleed kits in every school and office. Get Instinct Ready Kits and training at instinctready.com. Okay, let's jump back in. Well, the, the Governor's Association in concert with president carter did an executive order which turned into a federal agency a year ago a year after this right with uh with the standing of a fema and so like in terms of like its historical significance on the way we do emergency management or emergency response hazmat response um you know as as such a major impact um it really i was gonna make a is it appropriate to make puns about explosions and derailments on a book that I don't know, like my dark humor comes out. So, so this is a major tangent, uh, but I digress. Is that the, is that the appropriate way to say, uh, I do have one question about toad in particular, um, the book title, a walk through fire. Now this is going to be the most ridiculous. I actually have, I try to come up with fun, ridiculous questions for you. So they would be different than any other question you've ever gotten, because obviously people should read the book. First question. The book is called Walk Through Fire. I believe he ran through the fire. Todd ran through the fire. He was was it also Toad? I'm trying to remember. Was it also Toad who brought in the six thousand gallons of fuel that morning? No. Can you believe that somebody did that? Uh, a a uh, I was like <laughs> as soon as I read that no I'm I was reading on an airplane going into the Florida Hazmat Symposium. Oh. And I, I think I smacked my head so loud that at least four people woke up around me. <laughs> I couldn't believe. Anyways, uh, don't want to give too much away about the book. But so walk through fire. In terms of walk through fire, are you talking about your parents' perspective? Are you talking about a major, just like the 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 conceptualization of sometimes you just have to get through it. Literally, people had to get through it to survive. What do you mean by walk through fire? What was the not, why not run through fire? Or not why not like, you know, train derailment? Like what what was the the feeling behind the title of the book? Yeah, you hit on a lot of points there, and it does encompass all of those. But walk through fire, I think I originally thought of that title when I saw the photograph, and this photo is in the final edition of the book, not in the version you have, but in the final hardcover oh. edition that comes out on February twenty. How First, dare you? <laughs> uh, there is a photo of a um, firefighter named David Dillingham, and um, he plays an important role in the story because he rescued Frank Craver, whom your your listeners and readers will will be introduced to in the book. Mm -hmm. And so, David Dillingham in that photo is literally coming out of the fire, I and mean, it's a striking photograph of him just you know marching out of this fire that is behind him um and that was what made me think of that in conjunction with toad's story which you know the first part in the prologue he literally he ran he ran i mean literally he was running because he was trying to get away yeah. from the explosion but going the around the corner of the building or something right right yeah. but the the you know there was first the the flame of propane the blue flame that was just sheer propane that he first ran through and didn't realize what it was until later and that was what damaged his hands because they were down near his waist and then later a fireball as he's trying to get behind this building Sladen lumber company a fireball catches up to him and he 
has no choice. He has no, he can't go back because, you know, there's fire behind him. The building's collapsing behind him. He just runs through the fire in front of him. So walk through fire was a way to, you know, to pay tribute to that as well as show that this was a long process. It wasn't, as you mentioned, it wasn't just, you know, a one-time thing run through it. This was something people dealt with the rest of their lives and they had to get through it. And it was this sort of a slow walk through an awful tragedy. I think that's a that's absolutely the, the appropriate uh, part. I might have actually have you read page 79, but for the sake of this part, it's part of this is in uh, the, the beginning of the book explaining kind of that hook there. But um, I think it's on page 79 where my my awesome marker is. Um, his description of um the boil the the boiling sound mm. the boiling sound and then realizing later that it was his own skin and hair clothes um it reminded me of hiroshima peace park um i mm. lived in japan a few times and oh, obviously wow. doing um major responses when i read his description and reading the description of the fireball that went 1700 feet in the air all that stuff i can only imagine in that time when tensions were really high, that's like, you know, people had already, you know, people were pretty obviously familiar with World War II and, you know, 20 years after that. And then seeing this massive explosion and these descriptions, it, it reminds me of a nuke. And um, it just shows you like trail derailments. I mean, even the, the what was it, L, L and L, L and N uh, coming up and then just like hanging out and at the beginning and not even like communicating that. It's like, oh, by the right. way, you know, just for our listeners' sake, from a, an emergency management perspective, you'll read a lot more about this in the book. But um, small town people come up, and there's a as she mentioned, the doctor mentioned, there's uh, 24 cars turned over. They don't know. There's no markings uh, for um, the propane, 30,000 gallons each. What was interesting though is the people don't think about the, the, the cold versus the heat in the sun. So two days of just really, really cold, 15 degrees. But once it warmed up on that Friday, um, it, the cracks happened rapid expansion propane for those who are not hazmat background expands like 250 times, like instantaneously when it starts to warm up. So that rapid explosion, the expansion plus the heat, you had the, this uh, crazy disaster happen. And, and yet there was almost no true communication. They were, bring, like I said, they were bringing in 6,000 gallons of fuel. From your takeaway as a physician, with parents as a physician who are in this, what is your big call outs of not just why you wrote this book, but what can we learn from it so that we never really experience something like this ever again? Oh, I think there are so many things we could learn from this. And um, thankfully, you know, some of these lessons were put into place. Uh, as I say in the book, a disaster of this magnitude doesn't happen as the result of a single factor, but mm. it's rather the cataclysmic event at the end of an accumulation of errors and lapses in judgment. And yes. so, you know, this points to where protocols are really important because they're meant to keep us on track. And in the case of the Waverly train disaster, what led to the train derailing in the first place was, you know, in hindsight, a very simple mistake, very avoidable mistake. 
It was a cracked wheel on a gondola car that was carrying railroad cross, cross ties that was the cause of the derailment. And how that happened, how the wheel cracked was that at an intermediate stop, so the, the train left Nashville that evening and um, went through Colesburg, Tennessee on the way to Waverly. And at Colesburg, a car was taken out of the train and five others were added. And one of these was that gondola car. And then when the train departed Colesburg, the brakes had not been properly tested, which was a violation of federal regulations even at that time. Mm -hmm. So because of that, the handbrake on the rear wheel of that gondola car was left on. Simple mistake. Somebody should have just released that handbrake, but they didn't check when the cars were added to the train. And so the heat and the friction that built up as the train made its way toward Waverly caused the wheel to crack, like all the way through its rim plate and hub. And there's a picture of that in the book as well. Mm. Um, and so when that fractured wheel hit the switch and the tracks at Richland Crossing in Waverly and at that switch only properly aligned wheels should be able to go through, it pulled the car, the gondola car over on its side. It derailed the 22 cars behind it. And two of those were the um, uh, tankers loaded with liquid propane. And mm. then, you know, another mistake was that those tankers, as you've mentioned, were not labeled for liquid propane. They were actually labeled anhydrous ammonia. So uh -huh. for at least a day, Pete, nobody on, in, on the ground in Waverly knew there was liquid propane in those tankers. And as you say, that wasn't communicated. Um, then it was not communicated to the personnel on the ground, the first responders, that the tankers were not insulated. They were not properly insulated to withstand that kind of structural damage in the derailment. So they had no idea how much damage had actually been done to the tankers, how those cracks had propagated during the derailment and what significance that had when the temperature warmed up later on Friday and the propane was able to escape. Um, Boom. And you know, there are just series, uh, error after error. I think another important mistake that's worth highlighting um, for emergency managers because of its implications for all future management of train derailments and incidents like this was the premature release of the perimeter. So there was a 1,200 oh, foot I know. perimeter. Oh, right? Go back in? Yes. Right. Yeah, so there's a 1,200 foot perimeter that had been set up the first night and all the next day after the train derailed. Then after two days of you know these box cars and train tank cars lying on the ground without further major incident, a sense of complacency set in, and the firefighters, police officers on the ground in Waverly at the time were told by the railroad personnel and other authorities that it was safe, that it's a safe situation, yeah. nothing has happened, nothing's going to happen, and they could release the perimeter. And so, you know, the original plan set forth by Waverly's assistant fire chief, whom I believe you mentioned earlier, was to keep the perimeter. But, you know, everyone said it's OK. They released it. And all the injuries, loss of life, major property damage that occurred happened within that original 1200 foot perimeter. So yeah. if they had just held the perimeter, so much of that would have been reduced. You know, so so many more lives would have been saved. Well, what's interesting. So there's a lot to unpack there. From the setting of the perimeter uh, perspective, I thought it was incredibly clever that they just looked around town and found construction equipment and just yeah. like used what they got. Like, and I was like, we'll talk about a, a lesson of trying to have good situational awareness of just like sometimes this is what you you have. It it could be 
traffic cones. It could be whatever you have, but setting up that perimeter and perimeters do work. Um, and uh, I mean, to their credit, they had the right. In fact, the question I, I wrote down, big question mark was how did they determine 1200 feet? And it was basically like, oh, I think that's the right call. And, um, yeah. you know, it's funny how they started off with the right calls and they slowly progressed to, um, I would say, poor or incompetent decision making only because of a lack of training and understanding. I mean, you mentioned in the book, 1975, uh, they were still looking at hazmat and hazmat regulations. And even though they had some, um, there's there was definitely more that that needed to be created there. This is like a hazmat scenario that I would never want to happen because like the, I, you know, the, the cars are marked wrong. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Um, they don't, mm -hmm. there's really no standards. I could only name, which I want on this podcast, which events we would be most incompetent to now because of a lack of one experience, thankfully, but two, maybe of lack of training. And so it's a good call out for um, better coordination and communication and try to get every stakeholder involved. So they, they want to share information. Like, I don't know, what do you do during a, a train derailment? In fact, good call, call out um, for um, Colonel Chris McKinney, who was on our podcast before task force 46 is in charge of all seaman responses in the United States. And uh, we just did a train derailment exercise in Philadelphia last summer. I'm um, looking at this. So, People are looking at it, at least, um, but crazy stuff. Okay, now I get to ask you another fun question because I've wanted to ask you lots of fun questions. <laughs> On the side here of this book, now this I have the soft cover. We had a lots of jokes with my team because by the way of design, um, the the titles of each chapter have a line under the chapter, right? Uh, let's see a good example. This right here. See the line? Well, yeah. we started putting on our foil hats here and we're like, okay, if I move the book over slightly, if you can see that, I don't know if you can see on my screen, the lines oh. are all different. And we yeah. were like, we're like, oh, is this a message? Like, I love my parents because this is a love letter to your book. Or <laughs> is this like Morse code? So we started like doing the dot dots closer, farther apart. But um, it was it was kind of a fun thing. But your book really is um and i said this before we started recording a love letter to your parents and to your your the people in your community what would you want people to remember about your parents in this specific event i mean first of all i actually i'm talking too much but i have one comment you said the hospital is only three minutes away is that because okay. your dad's notoriously fast driver or is it actually <laughs> three minutes away I do no remember. i actually drove that <laughs> I drove that distance myself in Waverly to make sure I had that right. And it is three <laughs> minutes away. What was <laughs> the normal speed is limit look like? It's just one mile up the hillside. One mile. One and, mile. And there's almost minutes. no traffic in Waverly. So you can get there in three minutes. Yeah. Okay. So going <laughs> my, back my dad probably could have made it in one minute. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it exactly. took me three minutes. <laughs> yeah. And Sam would always beat him, right? She even beat him on the... Uh, that was my other oh man i had this other call out i'm jumping to me i i get excited i apologize but no i'm glad that's wonderful the, um when she said oh, i marked this down hopefully i can find it when your father arrived um at the hospital he took only two hours as a break and went back to the hospital and sam was already there and he asked her if she went home 
And she goes, no, myself and Nancy, we've, we've been here all night. And two things instantaneously happened. I, I felt so bad for Sam because I've done that so many times. Yeah. And I also felt so bad for your dad for only getting two hours of sleep because I've also done that so many times. So on both ends of the spectrum, they they are accredited with saving a lot of lives. I mean, honestly. And and the fact that you had made this call out in the beginning of the book that because your mom had worked in places like Cleveland and these other areas where, funny enough, same thing happens in emergency management. If you go to a really big emergency management agency, you get pigeonholed into one job and you don't become very good. But the fact that she was, I want to say, I want to say ostracized, hopefully that's not the right word. Um, but she was forced into other markets where she had to do a lot of different jobs and he had to do a lot of different jobs working in DC. Yeah. Waverly had such a blessing for having really competent physicians there to help that knew how to do a bunch of different things. So just want to call that out. But what do you want? Um, what do you want your, the audience to remember your parents as heroes or is there another perspective that you want them to see you know what my parents would tell you and it's what they told me was that they were just doing their jobs they mm. were just doing their duty they certainly didn't and don't think of themselves as heroes and really none it's really interesting to me because i do i think of them as heroes i'm a physician myself and i still think of all the physicians the medical staff and the first responders in this scenario as heroes um mm. Because writing about them was really difficult because I could feel, you know, as I was writing the what they went through, how difficult that was and what they saw. And these were people, you know, who were taking care of burn victims that they knew that they went to church with and community meetings with and they knew their children and their families and they were burned beyond recognition. These were their friends. So it was a very personal story. And so I think, you know, getting back to my parents, um, they will tell you they just went on autopilot and they were so grateful for their training. You know, they both trained at Howard University Hospital in Washington, D.C., and they saw everything there. So when they came to Waverly, they were really well prepared, even though they didn't know it. They were prepared for a disaster just like this. And my father had been drafted into the army during Vietnam, but That's he right. was allowed to finish his surgical training because of um, legislation known as the Berry Plan, which hmm. allowed physicians in certain specialties like surgery, which was a needed specialty, to finish their training. Hmm. And when he finished, he was uh, then in the army reserves, and he, you know, they they did drills and training for mass casualties. So he brought that training with him. And he said that when he was in that situation, it was just like he had been trained to be in a theater of war. And he just went to work with that in mind. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the remarkable stories, I, still, I, I can't get over it. It's described in the book. There is um, a, a method of getting a central line for intravenous access through the subclavian, which is the uh, vein underneath the clavicle. And it's hard to find, it's hard to hit, even in the best of times, even in somebody who has not been injured or burned. But in a burn victim, to find that is really difficult. And you really have to know your anatomy. You have to have done it, you know, hundreds, thousands of times. And my dad had. And so he was able to get intravenous access. And 
in, in all of these terribly burned patients so that they could get fluids and be stabilized. Hmm. And, uh, and for many of them, that was their only method of access for intravenous access. And he went through all these patients. I mean, they triaged over 40 patients within an hour and he That's... hit every stick the first time, didn't miss a single one. And I asked him about that recently again. And he said, you know, I really think there was a higher power gui guiding my hands that day. Yeah. Absolutely. So when he looks back on it, that's how he thinks of it. You know, uh, my listeners know that I'm a religious guy. Uh, I've lived all over the world and done some crazy stuff and I've seen some pretty rough stuff. It's funny enough, the rough stuff is what convinces me more that there is a, a loving, you know, eternal being there to, to help us out when, um, when we absolutely need it. And that doesn't get away that there's hard moments in life. Obviously people passed away. People were burned in this. Um, but um, tragic experiences can turn into um, generations of learning and growth. And um, you know, the fact that the first take every time there was actually another incident that you had called out. You set this up in the book, I believe with that story is when, um, he, it was, it was another physician, another hospital. And the guy's like, Oh, I don't, I don't suit up or I, I don't, I don't want yeah, I don't scrub in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't scrub in the guy was, and your dad was like, okay. And, uh, got to work and, um, he knew there was only like a 10% chance of the person living, but he still did the, uh, the operation and, and saved the person's That's life. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, talk about again, competency. So from lessons learned of emergency management and, and really uh, the responder community, communication, know your craft inside mm -hmm. and out, um, mm -hmm. get the best training, um, get a book written by you, by your daughter, um, all these <laughs> really great things um, that, that are good call outs here. Um, and, and really, again, as a love letter to your, your family and to, to your town, um, and I would tell my readers to read it like that because, again, they get, go in the analytical mind there a little bit. Uh, if they don't have a medical background, by the end of the book, they will have a medical background because I had to look up so many words uh, like, <laughs> what is this? What does this mean? I can't even pronounce this. But no, it was it was a really fa fascinating book and story because, again, I know the implications of what it meant for my field. And I think it's yeah. good to know that your history and um reading materials like this allow us to go in and even think um not on the scary side this isn't really the scope of this conversation but when we talk about active shooters we always say it's not a stranger like on tv it's you know these people and um I, I, this is gonna sound dark but on the best side it's not a, an intentional act but it could still people people you know and how do you process that information autopilot in a disaster is the best thing but for everybody listening, autopilot does turn off eventually. And you yes. need to have mechanisms, pr professional mechanisms, a crowd around you, healthy habits, all these different things we've talked about in other episodes to make sure that when that autopilot turns off, you don't become part of the party that you just had to help. And that's yes. what I call out there. I'm um, so glad you brought that up. That's so important. Yeah. Well, you talk about it in the book. So I'm just trying to be like more like you. So. <laughs> um, in terms of doctor, in terms of your final call out, not so much as a, as a pitch, because I think if, you know, I think people should read the book, so I'll pitch that for you. But in terms of your advice to the field of emergency services as a whole, after taking 10 years to really dive into this as writing this book, what is your final call out to somebody getting the field? What do they need to have on on, you know what I mean? On there. 
their belt. The tools. Preparation, <clears throat> training, so that you can go into that autopilot when it's needed. You know, I um, myself am a cardiologist and I used to um, be an ACLS instructor, advanced cardiac life support, which, you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with. And the whole point of having algorithms and protocols is so that you don't have to think when it comes down to disaster or tragedy in front of you, you can just go to work and just do what has been proven to work. I would say, you know, what, what came across to me is you've already mentioned communication and following the protocols. You know, if you're supposed to inspect the brakes, inspect them every time. <laughs> These yeah. are the things that prevent major disasters later on. So it's the little things that matter. The little things that matter. That's a, that's a good mic drop moment to end for a, uh, for a podcast that focuses on response, and we talk about training a lot. We talk about safety inspections is so huge. I think it was Lebanon. I think we had Dr. Um, Stephen Johnson on here. He's the head of Seaburn Division for the British Army. He was talking about like they stored all this chemical in the port, and no, like actually, the, the yeah. one safety officer kept on saying, Hey, this is a problem, shouldn't be stored here. Yeah. And nobody listened, and then go boom. So from any the whole spectrum of you should do the checks if you're still doing the checks and you find something to actually forcing people forcing is a, a word there but getting people to actually listen to you when you do identify a problem um, everybody's responsible in that process it's not good enough to just know about a process you have to fulfill it to to its uh to facility there uh, to its max so um, with that being said again walk through fire if you're watching I'm gonna put this up. This is, I have the paperback version. There's apparently a really cool hardback version with a bunch of pictures coming out. I'm excited to, to see that in the future. No, there's not Morse code on the side of this book. Walk Through Fire is the appropriate name. Dr. Ali, thank you so much again for taking the time to, to come on and talk to me and sharing your book with me. I really hope people read it. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Okay, if you like this episode, we're going to do all the things. Of course, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. If you got something out of this book, if you've read the book before or you have a question about train derailments or from literally a physician perspective, put a comment on social media. Let her see that. Let her doctor see that. Let the field see that. We get lots of uh, uh, emails, but emails are great. But let the community response. Let, 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 let that communication uh, mechanism happen. Again, Disaster Tough Podcast on LinkedIn, social media, right? Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things. Not TikTok. Sorry, we're not TikTokers. But... Uh,